and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. The challenge of education in the 21st century is a particularly acute one. With few knowing what skills will be relevant in even five years, test scores often foundering despite enormous funds spent on improving them, and many other malaises. This is to say nothing of the increased challenges of an increasingly diverse America, where everyone complains that others get ahead while they get left behind, including in school. With me to discuss these issues and more is Daniel Buck, a young buck teacher and a columnist at publications like Lone Conservative and Killette Magazine. Daniel, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So let me start with the question I ask all my uh, guests. How did you get into this? And I ask this in particular because uh, the teaching uh, profession, for various reasons, is known to be overwhelmingly uh, female-oriented. There aren't that many male teachers. How, uh, so why, why, why did you uh, get into this business? Uh, the teaching business or the politics business or a bit of both? Teaching, teaching, teaching. Teaching. Um, it was something that I kind of... Uh, fell into almost i think i had grown up sort of a very math science brained person or at least i thought i was and i got to college and looked back and realized i you know wrote poetry in my free time and i was on the school newspaper and had kind of on and off wanted to be a teacher my whole life and um flipped from being a pre-med to an english major spanish major in education and um started doing it and really liked it yeah what was the question so how what how what is it like uh, to be a, a, a one? I think I saw numbers like eighty five percent of teachers in the education system are women, and like fifteen percent are men. So mm-hmm. like you're like really the odd man out. Does it feel weird, or do you just fit in naturally? Uh, there are a few moments where you know I might be at a meeting and uh, most of the teachers are pregnant and discussing their pregnancies, and I just like can't relate. Um, but those moments are few and far between. Um, but honestly, being a male teacher, you're, it makes you a sought-after commodity because, you know, uh, school I'm at right now, I'm one of three male teachers, and uh, they would like more of a balance. So when you walk in the door for an interview, you suddenly are um, in high demand, and it's, uh, it, in some ways it helps my career. Cool. Um, I would like to follow up on that question is that one of the things that's uh, often discussed in regards to education is that uh, we often take a look at racial or class diversity uh, uh, breakdowns in education, and we'll get to that later. Uh, But one of the things that a lot of people have noted, especially in higher education, and I have to imagine it has a basis in K-12, is that a lot, at least some major segment of boys are substantially falling behind women in educational uh, attainment, and that often hurts or harms their future prospects in an increasingly uh, college-educated uh, world. Do you find? Do you see any sign of that uh, in your experience in school? Um, yeah, I think of. Uh, I know Christina Hoff Summers wrote a whole book on this, and there's a great Atlantic article from 2000. She was talking about this, and um, I see it, but no one really wants to talk about it. It's just not a a comfortable topic for a lot of people. It's, um, you're kind of a bit of a crazy person if you bring it up. But I mean, if you look, you know, you were talking about, we'll get into the the disparities later, but 
or the racial disparities later, but you know, um, majority of the suspensions and expulsions and office referrals and all those things are um, male students of color. Um, but in my day to day, I mean, I absolutely see it. Uh, the just the natural temperament of young women tends to suit the uh, expectations of middle and high school schooling as we have established it, staying in your spot, staying still, staying quiet. Um, and we could talk about is that a natural thing or is that a, a cultural influence that brings about this difference in temperament. Um, but absolutely, I mean, I, I have far more disciplinary conversations with boys than I do girls just because they want to uh, roughhouse during class. They're more likely to talk out of turn. They're more likely to say something that's a little you know, crossing a line from humor into disrespect. So it's, I see it in my day-to-day life. It shows up in the numbers. Um, what to do about that is a much more difficult question. Well, it's a difficult question, but it's nevertheless quite a pressing one. And, mm-hmm. I, w- and I wondered, again, based on your, because, I mean, we could discuss studies and whatnot, but I'm genuinely interested in your personal experience as a young uh, up-and-coming teacher. It, when you de- when dealing with students who struggle, either mm-hmm. boys or just in general, what sort of approaches so far do you feel have helped them improve or calm down or at least not fall behind? And what approaches do you think, even if they're recommended by, say, the higher-ups, that just they don't work as yeah. good intentions as they are? Um, I'm not sure how many people outside of the education world are going to know much about Doug Lamov or Teach Like a Champion. Um, well, then introduce us. There are a few charter school systems that are just blowing all the other schools out of the water when it comes to standardized testing, when it comes to, um, you know, getting students of color, minority students, poor students into college, colleges. Um, and they're very controversial. Um, they come under fire, it seems like, weekly on, you know, in the, the realm of teacher Twitter, but they, you can't deny their successes. And one of them in particular, so they're called Uncommon Schools, and they um, have started publishing books about their classroom practices, their pedagogy, their instructional practices, um, the culture that they create. You know, there's a book, it's called Teach Like a Champion, it has it's sold over a million copies and they've had a second edition out now um they published a book on reading instruction called reading reconsidered and i mean reading these books they completely flipped how i thought about education when i went through the university it was very um you know the students should make their own rules the students should be picking the books that they want to read um making everything as happy and soft and calm and quiet and nice and do-goody as possible. And I, I got to my first job and tried to do that and found students walking all over me. Um, and I started reading these books out of Uncommon Schools, like I said, Teach Like a Champion, and Reading Reconsidered, and it completely flipped how I thought about teaching, both from a disciplinary perspective where you need to make expectations incredibly clear you know, even the, the, 
even what they taught me at the university, there are kind of implicit expectations in there, even if you don't say them outright. Um, and it's, it's not authoritarian, it's not authoritative to um, have a clear expectation that for the next 10 minutes of work time, I want you to work silently. You know, um, learning requires focus. You have to actually be able to focus on what you're doing. And sometimes for that focus to work, you have to be quiet. You have to read your book. You have to think about the words and not be joking with a friend next to you. Um, so setting clear expectations uh, out, outright up front, you know, before every single activity, I give two or three really clear things that I want them to be doing, how I want them to be sitting, what they should be doing with their brains, what they should be doing with their mouths, that kind of thing, um, and then actually following up on that. And I find if I have thought through ahead of time what I actually want my students to be doing during an activity, if I've thought through that ahead of time and say clearly that catches 95% of the students, and then that last 5%, you know, having a conversation with them out in the hallway if I need to, pulling them from another class into my room to conference with them. And rarely do I find I actually have to be that stereotypical authoritarian teacher up front that's yelling at students. Like, that doesn't really accomplish much. It's, it's, uh, it's a straw man on, in, in a number of accounts. But, yeah, being clear with expectations and then um, bringing out the consequences after the fact. And that, that's worked out pretty well for me, and I've worked in some pretty tough schools before. Um, and it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. So I've been rambling. I'm sure you have a follow-up question of some kind. Well, uh, first of all, it's very fascinating to hear this descri description. Uh, I'm thinking back to my own experience uh, in school. I mean, I wasn't a, that much of a misbehaving kid, but uh, I have diagnosed more or less as being, quote-unquote, gifted. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that I remember... I always felt the most frustrated when I had absolutely no idea what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. When I felt like I was being tossed in, tossed from a ship into the deep end of the pool and just like swim, mm -hmm. right? So your point on giving clear, concise, understandable instructions, that may sound very simple and simplistic, but the simple and simplistic is often, what was it? What, how's the phrase go? Common sense is not so common. So. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you've really hit on, uh, on a very good way to calm uh, natural child anxiety without having to, like you say, go to, I guess, what, uh, what, what I've heard called the monster mentor approach where, you know, like someone in whiplash or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a quick comment on that one. I've watched a lot of teachers teach um, just because of the positions that I've had over the years, and it really is... Any halfway decent, if, if I am a halfway decent teacher, it's because I've been able to watch so many teachers over the years and observe them, and it's given me a really unique perspective on education. But there's a lot of things that, myself included, um, but I, I saw this first in other teachers where they were doing things and they didn't realize how they were encouraging and in some ways enabling bad behavior. They would say, we're going to have a classroom conversation, I want you guys to raise your hands, but then if a student shouted out, they would just accept it and keep going and then kids start to learn oh well i don't actually have to raise my hand because they're not going to um enforce this thing so it, it's it takes an incredible amount of self-awareness and energy to enforce to be able to state these expectations clearly and then also to enforce them takes energy because sometimes it is easier you know i think of one boy that likes to shout out a lot 
um, I it it would just be so much easier just to let him do it and move on, but to you know correct him in the moment, have a conversation with him afterwards, decide do I want to write an email to his mother, do I want to take points off of his card, do I need to have an office conference with him or something along those lines. It takes us a lot of self-awareness to make your expectations clear. See how are you enabling bad behavior and then also following up on it. It's, it, it's a lot of work um, to maintain uh, quality behavior, let alone in quality instruction and learning in a classroom. No doubt. Uh, that actually brings me uh, to my next question. Mm -hmm. uh, which is a, I mean, I realize it's a very deep question. This is again, this is aimed. Think of it as a mix of both your personal experience and what you've learned about education over the years. What do you think school is for? What can it do, and what can't it realistically do, in your view? And how does the, how do you think this works with or clashes with the common uh, popular understanding of what schools can or can't do? So, what is school for? What can it do? What can't it do? Yes. Yeah, I'm writing this down. That's that's a doozy. Um, and I look forward to okay. answering it. We got time. Yeah. Um, I'm not asking for a thesis here. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with educational thought or somebody like John Dewey. I have a very controversial response to that question, and that's kind of what is school for? What should we be teaching students? I mean, that's really the the crux of the issue, that's what all of our educational debates come down to. Um, and whenever you get into these, it always comes back to what are we trying to teach students? And if you ask me, uh, what is school for? I would say, let me see if I can try and think of a short, concise definition for this one, along with my short and concise directions. It is to pass along the knowledge that is worth knowing. Um, and there's a lot packed in there. There's this theorist from, oh man, when was he writing? Is Edie Hirsch. He, he was kind of this lesser known name during the Canon Wars, but anybody in education that's actually reading the books and involved in conversations is going to know um, Edie Hirsch. She's out of oh, University of Pennsylvania. I'll have to check that. I'm probably wrong. Um, but he wrote this really uh, controversial and, at this point, within the education world, canonical book. It's called Cultural Literacy. And he wanted to take the thoughts of Rousseau and John Dewey and basically all of what was happening at the universities and the schools of education at the time. He wanted to take them to task. And the thesis of his book was essentially... Um, for the last, since John Dewey, basically, we have thought of schools as these um, apolitical um, training grounds for the economy. We need to be teaching them job skills. We need to be teaching them critical thinking skills. We need to be teaching them um, literacy skills and math skills. And his counter to all of that was this idea that our intellectual capacities depend on skills uh, is bunk. It is a false theory. It doesn't um, follow up in the studies. His counter thesis is that all of these things that we consider skills actually falls, like comes back to knowledge. What do we know? So 
an example that I'll, if you've, if anybody's read my writing that actually is going to listen to this, um, an example I often give is I'll read To Kill a Mockingbird with my students, and I used to teach it to um, kids that were learning English. I had some of the higher level ESL kids, and they could read every word in the book, they could um, pronounce everything, they could sound it out, uh, individual sentences they could understand, but they sometimes struggled understanding the book, not because they didn't, not because they lacked um, literacy skills, but because they didn't know about the Great Depression in America. They didn't know anything about American Christianity. I had a lot of um, Somali students in there, so they're Muslim. So a lot of these passive-aggressive slights that these characters in To Kill a Mockingbird are making at each other are kind of criticizing fundamentalist baptism or uh, Baptists, fundamentalist Baptists. You know, these um, dialogues between characters were just, they were lost on them because they didn't know about American Christianity. Uh, if Herbert Hoover or FDR kind of came up in passing, they wouldn't understand that. Uh, if they didn't know about Jim Crow, the significance of the trial in that book is just completely lost on them. So reading that book is as much about their ability to sound out words and understand vocabulary as it is knowledge of history and debates over the courts and philosophy and all of these kinds of things. So when it comes down to what is school for, um, we need to be teaching important history. We need to be teaching um, important books and people might not like some of those books because they might be uh, controversial now, they might say things that are faux pas, they might use words that we don't particularly like, but to pick up any newspaper in America and understand the full context of it, even something like the 1619 Project, it would be hard to really grasp the significance of those things. Even if you can read all the words, um, if, you don't, if you haven't read the Constitution, if you haven't read the Declaration of Independence, if you haven't read um, Frederick Douglass, if you haven't read Martin Luther King, um, and this is going to be... So, back to your question, what is school for? I think focusing on really f figuring out what is the knowledge that is essential to understanding um, our current moment. What can't it do? It can't do that perfectly. Um, it's always going to come back to... Uh, you know, somebody has to make those decisions and that person is going to be influenced culturally, that group of people, that committee, be it a federal uh, committee that tries to throw together some curriculum or a local curriculum planning team, um, you know, at an individual district. They can't get everything. Um, there will always be more to read. There will always be more to learn. Of course. Um, that's... Uh, that's my thoughts on it condensed okay very well done uh i'd like to add uh, first a quick follow-up question and then we'll segue into when the next part of this discussion mm -hmm. um i uh, adding to what you said i've often felt when people talk about everybody needs to learn how to think and to need to learn critical thinking not what to think and i'm like look if you base yourself exclusively on pure logic, depending on the assumptions you use, you can reach some pretty absurd conclusions. Mm -hmm. The whole point of content, the whole point of tradition, the whole point of history is to ground you and to 
make you feel somewhat more humble as opposed to the, I don't know how much it is today, but I remember when all the myth busting started, ah, well, this would, this person wasn't a hero, the, he was a bum, and this person uh, was just a thief, and, uh, and this didn't actually do anything, and it was just a lot of fun. To, it wasn't just about, it wasn't even just politics, it was more, it was even about social cachet, about just having to, uh, taking fun and, uh, and poking fun at, the, at great people accomplishing things and on who we were, whom we rely. Um, but I would say, um, I guess I'll segue naturally uh, now. You mentioned the 1619 Project, and mm-hmm. I've heard many criticisms, uh, many valid criticisms of that project, and indeed of many uh, efforts uh, on the part of progressive educators and, uh, and, and curriculum preparers and so on and so forth to try and, I guess, impose a very doctrinally um, and one might even say revolutionary uh, conception of what America was and is. Uh, but I do feel that they do hit on something, and that is that once upon a time, uh, for a very long time, uh, American education and schools privileged, uh, pardon the pun, privileged uh, knowledge of very specific parts of American and Western civilization and either elided or ignored or didn't really give enough specific attention to uh, the experiences and feelings and aspirations of other uh, fellow American citizens. Uh, so my, my sense is that, okay, 1619 is bad, fine. The, the progressive approach is way too tough. But the fact is, is that if you're a teacher in any randomly selected school, unless you're in like, a, I don't know, you teach in a very select school, you're going to have students who are just as, you know, eager, one hopes, uh, who come from different racial backgrounds or different gender backgrounds or what have you. And and they want to also, in addition to knowing the stuff that's generally American, they're going to want to know stuff that's, you know, that helps them personally identify with it. That's an important thing. So how do you do that without saying, okay, in the name of making them feel welcome, we're going to overturn the entire American uh, ideals. How do you do that? Yeah. Um, I do want to say one last thing because you brought up uh, the critical thinking. Um, the I will get answer your question, but you said the the quip that you often hear: we shouldn't be teaching students what to think; we should be teaching them how to think. Um, flipping that cliche on its head, teaching students how to think begins with teaching them what to think. Um, you know, another example uh, would be if we. Back during the impeachment, if I wanted my students to actually think critically about Donald Trump's impeachment, we would have to, you know, they would have to know what does the Constitution say about impeachment, maybe read excerpts from the Federalist Papers that talked about the original intent of impeachment and what high crimes and misdemeanors mean. Um, It would help if they knew um, historical precedents. They have to actually know what happened, you know, what was in the phone call. Students can't think critically if they have nothing in their heads to think about. Shakespeare, um, nothing comes of nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. I think that was a Greek author, too, that Shakespeare totally cryptid from. That's a great quote. Um, But yeah, they have to be thinking about something. Um, Critical critical thinking, if you read John Dewey, he tries to make it into this grand um, thing that we can teach, but he gives an example of what is critical thinking. Well, it's a man standing outside feeling a, the air get a bit cooler, looking up and seeing that the sky is dark and coming to the conclusion that it's going to rain. And if that's what critical thinking is, it's a pretty natural, innate process. 
and really being able to think critically. And I realize I'm now using the same phrase that I'm trying to uh, denigrate, but it's lots of knowledge and facts applied to a simple process. Moving on to the 1619 project and um, sort of a multicultural education, I think there are uh, two things that we can be doing. Um, you know, there, there are some good critiques in the 1619 project and in the realm of critical theory and more progressive education than I think you know, those who might consider more traditional educators like myself, that we can learn from these things. Um, how can I make things relatable to students who are outside of the cultural mainstream? One thing I think of is incorporating great books from diverse authors. So there are a number of amazing American authors that aren't a part of the traditional, um, you know, dead white men canon, and working in um, Chinua Achebe, things fall apart, or working in Toni Morrison, or working in um, Julie Alvarez, or Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You know, there are great books worth reading, canonical books that aren't just in the typical Western canon. And I care much more when it comes to, I'm an English teacher, so I think about this mostly from uh, the literature perspective, but there are, I care more about the main, maintenance of reading good, high quality books with students than what those books necessarily are. So I don't want to, I replace Shakespeare, fine, but replace them with a book that's e of equal quality, not just some young adult fiction book that we think the is going to interest the kids because um, it's easier to read and you know talks about some traumatic. Uh, I don't know how much young adult fiction you've read, but it's it's just not very very literature. little. Um, I'm a long way away from being a, a young adult. <laughs> yeah, good. Don't don't go back <laughs> to reading that stuff. So one, um, there are great books that out that are out that are outside of the Western canon um, that are worth reading and work those books in. I do. Uh, and then two, any great book is going to be relatable to the human experience in general. So I teach Romeo and Juliet every year. And I used to teach at a very diverse high school. And I read Romeo and Juliet with them. And honestly, my kids connected to that. Um, because, I mean, our school had fights on the regular, uh, at least weekly, some bad weeks, it would be daily. And Romeo and Juliet opens up with a street fight. Right. And making that connection with kids, they're 14, they might not see that connection immediately. But, you know, re after reading the first couple acts or the first couple scenes of Romeo and Juliet sitting down and asking the kids, all right, there's a lot of, a lot of fights going on in here. Um, why are there so many fights at our school? You know, what can Romeo and Juliet help us learn about that? Or um, Never thought when, of that. when Juliet in act, the end of act three, I think it is, the end of act four, she gets in a huge fight with uh, her father and he basically says, um, 
he implies that he's about to give her a whooping and says, go get married to this man. Otherwise, you're on the street. Beg, starve, die. I don't care. And after we read that scene and then we watch it too, there's kind of always this just really tense silence in the room because I think a lot of kids can relate to that. And then and asking, all right, so what could, what should kids do like Juliet when they have an abusive father? And, you know, connecting or even uh, Romeo all throughout doing something that's not quite as heavy, you know, abusive families and street fights, but just the boys, the way that they joke about women um, or how they relate to each other. These kinds of things, these kids can connect to them and helping them make those connections. I think too many teachers just think the kids should see them immediately. And again, they're 14. They need a little bit of help and crafting these questions that force these kids to connect it to their lives and then reflect on it and learn from it for themselves, see if they can't improve their life from it. And I remember um, last year, a girl came up to me after one of these conversations and she was like, Mr. Buck, that is the most fun in any English class that I've ever had. I've never just like felt like I have learned something so like that I have learned something so personal from a book like this. You know, this this book just gets me. You know, I can relate to it. I see my life in it. Uh, and another kind of funny story. Uh, there's a scene in Romeo and Juliet where Romeo kills another character in cold blood. And in one of the versions, it's kind of again, it's it's in a street, and he has a he shoots him with a pistol. And after that scene, one of the boys in my class will have to probably censor myself for this. Oh, how exactly did he phrase it? He's like, he said something along the lines, Romeo was cold as frick when he killed that mother fricker in the street. Wow. And normally that kind of phrase uttered aloud in my class would you know, get them in a lot of trouble. But I just looked at this kid, I was like, you know what? You're right. That was awesome. And then we moved on with class. So kids can relate to these, book if we, these books if we help them. Um, wow. We make the connections for them. You 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 mentioned an, an interesting point, and it, it supplements my question because one of the challenges I think that I see in people talking about the to uh, teaching, especially on political Twitter, people talk about civics. Uh, they say, you know, if only we had better civics education, then you know everybody would be better citizens. And I'm like, at least when I was in high school. Uh, I, I know that this isn't your subject, but it's 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 all related ultimately. Mm -hmm. uh, that the way they taught it was so incredibly dry, mm -hmm. and so incredibly technical, and so incredibly unrelatable. It was such learn for the test, and then forget about the next day kind of material. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you, at the very least in English, have found a way to hit upon taking ostensibly you know centuries centuries old literature. And saying no, this is relevant for you. This is the kind of thing that should continue to be relevant for you long after you graduate. Mm -hmm. uh, do 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 your colleagues sometimes uh, say, you know what? Hey, that's a good idea. I'll try it in my uh, in, in my class. Or or is everybody is everybody like very stuck on? It? No, I have a particular I have a particular teaching, and I'm not changing it. Um, it depends on the teacher. Um... I think some teachers are very set in their ways. Some teachers are very open. Some teachers are very open to ideas, but 
often the wrong ideas. Uh, and the best teachers are very critical. Um, so again, I mentioned I spent a lot of time observing teachers. I was what you would call a support teacher. So I was in a bunch of different rooms um, helping the kids that were basically behind and struggling. I don't do this anymore, but I did it for two years. And the teachers that didn't need my help were the ones that after class were like, Buck, what do you think I could have done better? Um, what should I be doing differently? Um, that even though, you know, when I was doing this, I was a third year teacher. Uh, so I'd be working with somebody who's been in the profession for 30 years. They'd be asking for feedback just because they want criticism and they want to improve. And the teachers who need the most help are the ones that don't think they need the help. But... I mean, this gets into more questions of policy, unions, choice. I think there isn't a lot of meaningful pressure that can be applied to teachers, so they're not forced to question their ways. Um, standardized tests are denigrated, so if they do poorly, it's the test's fault and not that they have to do anything differently. Uh, if somebody, if their administration is asking them to do something differently, um, well, it's a bad administration, they, they, and I can do what I want, and I'm not going to get fired for it anyways. So administrations basically have to beg and plead with teachers to do something differently because they have no, they don't, they don't have any teeth. They can't enforce any curricular or pedagogical change in their teachers. But most teachers do want to do better. You know, I worked with uh, 10 teachers when I was in the support position and seven out of the 10 really wanted to do better. A lot of them just didn't know what to do because there's... Kind of like many students. Yeah. Um, many of them just didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to look. What they were trying wasn't working. Um, and then I think over time, some of them just kind of had a hardened heart to use a very... Christianese phrase in there. Um, it's easier to eventually start to blame the system than continue to question yourself over and over and over and over and over because that gets old and that's um, emotionally painful. <laughs> You're like asking, man, am I doing something wrong? Am I harming these kids? Am I bad at my job? What can I be doing better? That takes, um, that takes a lot and it takes a toll on you to ask it over and over and over. So I think eventually it just gets easier to cast the blame elsewhere. I can imagine. Uh, I often take heart uh, whenever I struggle with, uh, I mean, I, I, I've been writing columns for years. I, Thomas Sowell, one of my favorite writers, one of his best pieces of advice, someone wrote to him, how did you become such a good writer? I said, well, I, had, I have no idea how to become a good writer except to start a bad one and keep improving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I actually want to, that's a, that's a great segue to the next issue. Um, Okay, a lot of people may naturally blame the system unfairly, but are teachers' unions really the penalt the ultimate obstacle to uh, educational advancement, or are they merely one of many? And are there cases where you might say, okay, we do need some form of organized representation for people who work in teaching, just not whatever it is we have right now? Uh, they're not as influential as they used to be because um, so many states started turning towards right-to-work laws and then eventually it was 
Um, it came before the Supreme Court, and I'm pretty sure nowhere anyone has to pay union dues anymore. They're, I don't know, they're, they're very politically influential. Um, my biggest issue with unions is their political advocacy, so I think they block a lot of the meaningful change that could be enacted in schools, school choice, charter educa charter schools, um, the, the individualization of different schools. So one school might be very project-based, one school might go, um, you know, go hard for the classical education, these kinds of things. I am by no means against the very idea of teachings unions if they, you know, there's sort of an, a, a right to assemble and all these kinds of things, if they kept themselves to bargaining for <clears throat> optional contracts, <clears throat> sorry, and then, you know, some uh, teacher training that they could offer and then legal guidance, I wouldn't mind teachers unions. I could even see myself joining one as a kind of an opponent to them. It's the... Uh, it's the, the political advocacy that I think is their true damage. And also, even though most states are right to work, um, all contracts are still argued and written up by unions, even if the teacher isn't a part of one. So I recently switched from a public school to a private school. If I went back to the public school, um, I wouldn't be able to bargain for myself, which eh, there's a lot in there. Um, so in short answer to your question, there's other things worth discussing in education. They're not all bad, but they do block a lot of meaningful policy. Okay. Uh, which brings me to the final question, which I'm going to have two parts to it. First part one is if you were put in charge of educational policy, assuming unlimited political capital, everybody agrees to whatever you say for a year. What would you do? And the second part is someone comes up to you, reads your columns or uh, hears this podcast and says, hey, you know what? I, I was kind of turned off of being a teacher because I hear of all the problems and all the, all the headaches and whatever, but this sounds like something where I can really make a difference. What advice would you give that person? Yeah. Um, so first question, if I had complete control I would <laughs> I would nuke the Department of Education not nuke it but um, get rid of it at the federal okay. level and return it back to the states and what would happen there I would stop trying to run schools up top and just fund it like mad so you know this would be school choice uh, voucher school vouchers or um, what are called educational savings accounts basically right now I'm not sure how familiar familiar your guests are with school funding in the United States but schools are mostly funded by property taxes and then students are assigned to schools based on where they live so if you live in an affluent neighborhood the school has a ton of money and all the kids kids in that neighborhood go to that school and the affluent stay affluent, get great edu education, and then if you go to a poor neighborhood, that school has way less money, 
and uh, the kids have to go there and they can't go anywhere else and families have been jailed or fined for trying to send their kids elsewhere. And what vouchers are, are basically we would stick a dollar amount to the top of every kid's head, you know, $10,000 on their forehead, whatever amount we deem necessary. And then wherever that kid wants to go, that school gets the money. And it would be a much more equal um, and ethical way to apportion funds in the education system. And then tied with that, so funding the student directly versus funding a building based on property taxes, and then deregulating schools. And instead of having this like high bar that we're all trying to reach for, uh, this would probably be controversial. We're basically setting a low bar that schools at least have to reach. If a school um, wants to go hard for the arts and parents want to send their kids to that art school, fine. They still need to teach kids how to read. They need to teach kids basic civics. They need to teach them basic math. They need to teach them um, uh, basic history. But if that school wants to focus on art and music and theater and a little bit less on calculus or um, reading the yet more and more and more and more and more canonical books, who am I to judge? Let them do it. If one school wants to do project-based learning where the kids are designing their own projects and sort of building their own class from their own interests, if done well, project-based learning can really work. Let's let them do that. If school number three wants to do um, classical education where the kids are sitting in rows and they're doing rote grammar and reading the Greeks and all of these kinds of things, let them do it. And the district that I used to teach at had four high schools and they were all copy paste. They were all the same. That was one of the things like we got to, you know, it's, it's four different high schools, one system. And I think why not have four different high schools and let them be different, have the art school, have the tech school, the sort of the vocational school, have the classical school and have a project-based learning school. And then kids can self-select which one they want to go into and you know, most of the kids might go to school B, but then there are these other options and there's just so much good that would come from that. Um, and I could wax poetic about it for hours, but if I were given complete control, it would be fund the students directly and then let schools have much more wiggle room to respond to local demands and offer a unique product. And, and it, it becomes much more a, a market of education versus this factory model, everyone's the same, copy-paste education. I think our, our system and our populace would be much better off for that. More genuine diversity, if you will. Correct. A diversity of education, of okay. means of teaching, because there's not really, <clears throat> there's no one best way to teach a kid. Uh, I have my priors and what I think is best in the way that I teach and the kind of school I would look for for my own children when I have them. But if a parent disagrees and they want to send their kid to a project-based learning school, fine. 
you know, like I said, there's a lot of good to it. Um, I have my problems with it, but that's from my own worldview, from my own perspective, from my own values. And it feels like a, <laughs> the, my scheme of education, this sort of more libertarian scheme of public schooling, uh, would better match the, the pluralistic ideal, the pluralistic society that we all talk about and um, is really actually quite difficult to do. Okay. And what about advice to prospective uh, teachers who come to you for advice? Yeah. Stay critical. Read books. Um, find the good teachers and uh, let them mentor you. So my first few years of teaching, I asked every teacher that I respected um, to come into my room and to observe and to give me feedback. I asked them what books that they liked and I read them. Even on Twitter, um, I started, like, Twitter has become sort of a professional development tool for me because I followed all of these teachers and thinkers who are writing, who are discussing their books and... Um, constantly staying critical and questioning and seeking out what what works best and um, reading not just how-to manuals but sort of the the higher level philosophical discussions you know what is the purpose of education what is the the nature of knowledge and epistemology and these kinds of things because that's going to then influence what kind of teacher you become what camp of educator you join what team you're on. Um, so uh, there's no easy answers. There's no tips or tricks, but there are kind of practices that I think every teacher should have, which is, again, um, really interacting with the teachers that you respect, reading, 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 um, and then some sort of self-reflection. If, if, if that's in conversation, if that's... Um, keeping a journal or at the end of every day you spend 10 minutes just writing something down even if it's you know this was an average day just keeping that norm because you might write that 14 days in a row and then on the 15th day you actually have a breakthrough and then you have that habit already set up when then you can sit and think more critically um so those are three things and then the fourth uh, don't give into easy answers uh, again, blaming the test or blaming the system or blaming the students or blaming the parents. These are all important conversations, but we need to be open to our own self-criticism too, willing to ask, okay, maybe the parents aren't involved, but what can I be doing better to reach this kid, to make this content more interesting, to give them what they need? We all, with individuals, we all have a, a fault to address in there too sounds like very very good advice and i look forward to your uh, continuing to from success to success uh, as we just say uh, in education and i hope uh, more people are inspired by uh, your work and uh, i hope this podcast in general yeah daniel buck thank you very much this was a very interesting conversation yeah thank you this is this is really fun mm -hmm.